Hello, this is Jeremy Sims with the Creekside Community Church Podcast, and today we're going to be talking about Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 31. So here's a question. Have you ever seen somebody, and you got to know what was going on in their life, their situation, and you started realizing they were driving off a cliff, like at maximum speed? They were just going to plummet off there and go, ah, you know, with kind of their entire lives. And you couldn't seem to talk them out of it. You kind of got that, oh, if only I could get them to listen. Well, I think we get a little bit of that here with Paul. Uh, Of course, the situation is, we'll recap real quick what the book of Galatians is about in general. It's about this church in Galatia, or rather group of churches, having been kind of infiltrated by the side group called the Judaizers, who are trying to tell these new Christians that to really be true Christians, you have to first follow the Old Testament law and become a Jew, and then after following the Old Testament law, then you become a Christian. They believe that salvation was contingent on following the law, uh, not on simple faith in Christ. And Paul vehemently disagrees with them, uh, and he is arguing against them. He's writing to these churches where he had been previously and trying to say, no, 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 that's wrong. And looking at Galatians as a whole, he start off kind of just trying to say, Hey, I am a genuine apostle. I genuinely understand the gospel. I get my authority directly from God. So he kind of establishes that in the first chapter or two. And then after that, he just starts laying in one argument after another about why they are mistaken about needing to follow the law to follow Christ. And in the last lesson, we talked about how the covenant of Abraham and the covenant of Moses work together and how we as Christians are inheritors of the promise through Abraham, not through Moses, Uh, and that the law of Moses had no effect on the promise that was through Abraham, that the promise of Abraham was and still is through faith, and that now that we have trusted Christ, been united with Christ through faith, through that promise through Abraham, we are now sons and heirs co-heirs with Christ. We have sonship to God, and that is worth so much more than being, you know, servants of the law, being underneath the tutelage, the guardianship of the law. So we've had these last two lessons just full of argument after argument after argument as as to why the Judaizers are wrong. But here in this section, we see uh, over half of this lesson is going to be spent with Paul just kind of taking a break, taking a seat back and being like, guys, I'm concerned about you. And you see his heart for this church where he used to minister. And after kind of making this personal appeal, this more intimate moment, he's going to make another logical case uh, using the example of of something that happened with Sarah and Hagar in the Old Testament and how that is uh, symbolic of what we need to do with the law. So let's read through this passage real quick, and then we'll start back up the beginning and start breaking it down verse by verse. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days, and months, and seasons, and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? 
They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. All right, so back up to verse 8. Um, in the previous lesson, we just talked about, uh, Paul ended with this thought of, hey, you are now like a fully grown and mature child who is a co-heir with Christ, whereas before you were like a little child under the guardianship or, or slavery of the law. So now that you are a son, is his point that he's about to make, it is unnatural for you to try to go back to the slavery of being like a little child under the guardianship of the law. And he's going to start making more personal appeal to the Galatians. So in verse 8, it says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now he's focusing more on the Gentile Christians here, and he's saying, look, you used to follow these false gods, and you were enslaved by them. And what did they all have? They all had sets of rules for you to follow. Do this if you want to please the God. Do this if you want to uh, get the blessings of these various gods. And he's saying, this is what the system you used to be under. Verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? So lots of stuff in this verse. Uh, but now that you have come to know God, which clearly that's referring to a salvation experience, or rather to be known by God. Now that's an interesting secondary phrase that's thrown in there, and I don't really know what the difference is between knowing God and rather to be known by God. But So I looked up a bunch of commentaries on this, and everyone seemed to be suggesting the point is to emphasize that in our salvation experience, it's God that is taking the initiative. He is he is doing the process. He is the one who's in charge of it. It's not so much us. It's it's kind of show that he's the one who is seeking restoration. We re choose to respond to that, but he's the one who starts it. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? So what's the deal with these elementary principles? We talked about that last time. It's this idea of kind of the ABCs of something, the fundamental principles of something. Now, the last time that was used in the last section, it seemed to be referring to the law. But here, the context seems to be to the Gentile Christians who are coming out of the pagan system. 
So again, and I mentioned this last time as well, I think the idea of elementary principles here, it does refer more to the fundamental ideas behind the Mosaic Law. But even more than that, it's the elementary principles of you get what you earn in general, which can be found both in the pagan world, like we were talking about, all the gods have their own expectations, you know, the, the false gods have expectations put upon them of how you're supposed to please them. And same thing with the true god on the Mos under the Mosaic Covenant. It's that idea that you have to earn what you get, that elementary principle that if you want something, you have to be good enough for it. So he's saying, now that you have this relationship where you are known by God in probably that intimate way, that might be calling back to the idea of, you know, how we have the spirit of Abba, Father, that daddy, that personal relationship. Now that you are that full son of God, how can you turn back into the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? That spirit, whether from paganism or from, um, from the Mosaic covenant of having to earn your place with God whose slaves you want to be once more. He says that's bondage, that's slavery, that's not useful to you, that's not good. He calls it weak and worthless. It That law, that spirit of trying to keep the law to please God, it adds nothing. Again, as we talked about last time, that law actually served to bring us into bondage, to capture us, to imprison us, to make us slaves. It doesn't free us. Verse 10, You observe days and months and seasons and years I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So it doesn't specify what these days, months, seasons, and years are. And some people try to argue this is referring to pagan holidays since it was talking about, you know, formerly being underneath those that were no gods. But the entire context of Galatians makes it really clear that, uh, that every indication is that the Judaizers were trying to get people to follow the Mosaic law. There's nothing here other than if you want to use like the one or two preceding verses to suggest that they were urging people to follow other false gods. So it seems pretty clear that it's referring to them taking up the the holidays in the Mosaic law and, you know, trying to observe those to to get their place with God, to earn their placement with God. And Paul says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In other words, all this work I've done, all this work I've tried to do to to teach you about who Christ is and what he do, did for you, it's like it's a complete wasted effort. It's come to nothing. So in this next section, Paul gets really, really personal. He starts to make, just, just kind of talk to them in more of a conversational way and kind of be like, guys, what's going on here? Do you not see what's happening? Uh, in verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. So one thing that's important here is just that first word, brothers, all right? Even though he's been kind of going at them pretty hard, he still calls them brothers. Not only that, uh, you see at the end he says, you did me no wrong. That's kind of a weird thing, but I think I think the idea here is, uh, even though it does seem like at least some in Galatia were saying some not-so-nice things about Paul— I think the idea is he's trying to tell them, look, I'm not offended. I'm, I'm coming at you guys. I'm, I'm using some harsh language, but you're still my brothers. And I want you to know I'm not coming at you with a vendetta. Uh, I am trying to get you guys to understand the truth here. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. So this is kind of interesting, and it reminded me of another passage. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 11, 1. This is Paul speaking again. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. 
be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Um, and it's this last point here. Paul in, in Galatians is saying, um, become as I am. And here's another place where he's saying something very similar. He's saying, be imitators of me. But this is an excellent uh, thing to keep in mind in regards to spiritual leadership, those who would make themselves spiritual leaders or, or yeah, I guess that works. Those who are spiritual leaders for whatever reason. Um, be imitators of me or them as I am of Christ. Okay. Only follow people, uh, spiritual leaders in as far, follow their example in as far as they are imitating Christ, that they are following Christ correctly. Uh, that is a good principle to, to internalize and, and keep in mind at all times. However, that doesn't tell us what exactly Paul is trying to get across here. Become like him in what way? He says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. So seemingly he's talking to the Galatian church and saying, look, I've been where you are at. I've become as you are. Um, so what does that mean? <laughs> it's There are a lot of different takes on it. So one of the ideas I found kind of interesting is that he might be saying, look, there are many times I have become whatever you needed me to be. I've been very flexible in accommodating myself to you. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, we see him laying out how to the Jews I became a Jew, to the Greeks I became Greeks. He seemed to just kind of take on the customs or the needs of whatever people needed in order to minister to people. So he might be saying, just like I have been so flexible and accommodating to you, guys, accommodate me on this one thing. Just take my word for it. Give me some flexibility. Even if you're not sure, just kind of cut, cut me a break here. Uh, that's probably not what's being talked about, but I, I thought it was an interesting take worth mentioning. Most of the explanations seem to be slight varieties of just saying Paul was somebody who no longer considered himself under the law, bound by the law, trying to prove himself by the law, and he was saying, you guys become like me in that respect. Uh, and maybe he was saying, for instance, that I have now become like you because you guys are Greeks and you aren't never considered yourself under the law until recent times, of course, when they were getting misled by this Galatian heresy. Um, but I have actually become like you and you guys now need to become like me. <laughs> like like we've passed each other uh, like ships in the night or something. We you, Come back to me. All right. Be like me now because uh, I am now like you. It might even be that he is trying to get them to kind of imitate his exact pattern of getting past the the sort of obsession with the law as your means of justification. We see this laid out pretty well and expanded upon in Philippians 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, referring to circumcision, presumably. For we are the circumcision, I think he's referring there to spiritual circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might, may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Uh, So yeah, I thought that kind of expanded on what I think is the same idea here really well. But basically, he's like, I used to be a Pharisee trying to keep every little bit of the law, and I now have become like you guys who were never bound by the law. And you need to become like me now because you're trying to bind yourself by the law. Get past that. Become like I am now, like how you were originally, not bound by the law. Verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So, uh, it talks about, and we don't know the specifics of it, but we, it talks about how Paul had some ailment that brought him to the Galatians. Um, and, well, let's talk about the important stuff first, and then I'll, I'll squeeze in my, my nonsense that I find interesting. Uh, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to at first. And what's his point? His point is that his illness, whatever it was, was kind of gross and nasty. Uh, and also, in the culture of that time, being um, sick, both in the Jewish world and the Gentile world, was often thought of as being a judgment by God. We see Jesus pushing back on some of this on in his earthly ministry. Um, so it's thought of as a judgment of God. So he's somebody that could have easily been scorned. Uh, perhaps his, his ailment itself was, you know, unpleasant. And of course, in general, ailments are unpleasant. I don't think any of us probably, if we were just looking for our own personal happiness, would, would seek to be around people who are doing poorly. That's not always the most fun thing. And sometimes it's contagious and there's messes. Uh, but it says, and though my condition was a trial to you, so whatever it was, it was it was tough. It was trying on them. You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So the main point he's trying to say is he's trying to point at how they were previously so sweet and kind to him. That's his main point. Uh, and for us, it's a good moment to ask ourselves if we have that same kindness and generosity towards us. Okay, now for my nonsense. <laughs> that is not really super relevant, but it's kind of interesting. So there's this theory that Paul may have had eye troubles. And the reason we think that, we don't know, but there's lots of little pieces that kind of point in that direction. And one of the big things is here, another verse or two, it talks about, Paul says, the Galatians would have been willing to pluck out their eyes for Paul. Uh, suggesting that maybe his ailment had to do with his eyes. They'd be like, if we could, we'd just pluck ours out and give it to you. Uh, Also, later in the book of Galatians, it mentions that Paul writes in really big letters, uh, like maybe literal physical letters he'd write overly large because he had trouble seeing. Uh, When he is brought before a council of Jews at one point, he does not recognize the high priest, even though he would have been very informed and presumably that he would have known who that was or been able to pick him out of the crowd. But he actually starts talking trash about the high priest and then gets called on. He's like, oh, I didn't know he was the high priest. Um, So as far as reasons this may have happened, uh, he would have been, you know, reading low light, lots of text at the time. Uh, You know, if he was reading, studying, Uh, he was struck blind on the road to Damascus. So perhaps there were some lingering after effects of that. Um, even though God healed him, but maybe there's something, you know, he kept a little bit of trouble there. He was beaten up all the time, uh, on his missionary journeys. So anyway, we don't know, but I just think it's kind of interesting. I want to throw that out there as a fun little maybe sort of thing. 
So weird theories about Paul's eyes set to the side. The main point of that is that he came to them in a time of need, having a medical crisis, and they still received him as a messenger of God, uh, as like an ambassador of Christ. So this leads into verse 15, where he asks this really critical question. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So we already talked about the, the gouging out of your eyes. And maybe this is just metaphorical to say, you know, you guys were being so generous to me. Maybe it's not literally saying that he, they needed new eye, that he needed new eyes. But the primary thing actually hinges on the question. What then has become of your blessedness? What he's saying is, what's changed, guys? You used to love me. You used to be so generous. You must, used to be so kind towards me. And now something's changed. What is it? Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Don't know about you, but for me, that's a, that's a sad verse. You know, again, back up to verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? That word blessedness is uh, basically the idea of like good fortune or, uh, you know, we use the expressions kind of like kind of Christian culture. We talk about being blessed, you know, it's a very Southern kind of thing, but it's like a literal being blessed for real, enjoying the, the, blessings and peace of God. It's very similar to the words that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit, um, blessed are the meek, all these sorts of things. It's that sort of blessedness that we're supposed to be experiencing. And by the way, the implication of all this is that the natural, the natural outpouring of a Christian life and a Christian heart should be one of gratefulness and blessedness and appreciation of the good fortune that, that we get to be Christians. And yet, something has changed. And what has changed? In Paul's opinion, which of course is divinely uh, inspired in this particular book, he says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And the sad fact of it is that when we tell people the truth, we will sometimes become their enemy. And that's a very heavy thing and a very sad thing. But I think we see that a lot in today's culture. And I know if you are like me, when you hear this, you will naturally think of times that you have told people being very wise and smart and having figured everything out, your wisdom, you've imparted it to them and they've gotten mad at you. And that happens and that stinks. But we should all reverse it as well and realize we've all almost certainly been the people who've had the wisdom revealed to us, have had other people tell us the truth, and we've got bowed up with pride and we have thought, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. We have been the ones resistant and resentful. Uh, so... Let's all take a little minute to look inside ourselves and, and make sure we are being teachable and correctable and humble uh, and that we are truly loving the truth and not just loving, trying to be right. Verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So this is kind of a weird verse, uh, but there are a couple of strange issues going on here. One is that phrase, they make make much of you, <laughs> is a weird one to translate. Uh, that whole make much of idea has been translated as like zealously affect, zealously court, eagerly seek, are zealous for. Uh, it's kind of the idea that they're after you, but it's a little ambiguous to what's the best translation for it. But for some reason, they're after you. And the ESV here says makes much of you. They're, they want to make a big deal about you. They want to try to get you to their side for some reason. And what is that reason? It says they want to shut you out. And here where it says shut you out, it could also go shut us out. Us as in the the previous leaders like Paul and Barnabas and the people who have been ministering to them before were telling them the gospel correctly. Uh, and I think that's probably the better way to go with this for reasons I don't have time to get into. They want to shut us out 
that you may make much of them. So in other words, these people are going after you. They're, they're wanting to get you to their side, but they're doing this just so you will be obsessed with them. They are using you as a pawn. And they've now driven you away from me. They're trying to say that me telling me, Paul, telling you the truth has made me the enemy just because they want you to be obsessed with them. And I think a basic takeaway we can get from this is that there is manipulation. There are absolutely people that are going to use religion, church, the Bible, whatever they can. They're going to use it in an evil way to manipulate you. And you need to be looking out for that. Anytime somebody comes into your life, tries to get you obsessed about them, and then starts creating division between you and your other previous relationships, that's the sort of things that cults do, guys. That's kind of things that toxic relationships do. That is usually a warning sign. Occasionally, there are good reasons to create breaks in previous relationships, but if somebody just sweeps into your life and starts doing that, that's a problem. That's warning signs should be going off in your head, warning sirens. Uh, and, and that's basically Paul saying, this is what's happened here. Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. So what I think Paul's saying here is he's saying, look, it's fine to have people making much of you or, you know, be zealously going after you or however you want to translate that. It's fine to have new leaders come into your life to help you spiritually with your different, you know, spiritual growth and take an interest in you and, and to even have, you know, some... Some, obviously, we're, not, we're supposed to be following Christ and not spiritual leaders necessarily uh, as our primary thing. But again, as long as they are following Christ, it's fine to follow them. And I think he's saying that's good. That's fine. But only for a good purpose. It's supposed to be for a good purpose. And guys, where they are taking you is not a good for purpose. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. So he's saying it's not just about me. It's not about me, guys. It's about the good purpose that you're supposed to be pursuing here. Verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but typically speaking, you only have children once. So the fact that Paul is saying, I'm having to go through childbirth again for you is a sign that something's gone wrong. Also, childbirth is painful. I've been told. I thankfully have not experienced it personally, but uh, it it's painful not only for the parent, but also for the child. So this metaphor he's using is a pretty good one. He's trying to say, I know this is tough. I know this is hard, but I've got to help you form Christ in your life. Somehow that has not happened. This, the childbirth has gone wrong. We have to do it over again. What has happened? And again, the focus is on forming Christ in them. Notice Paul isn't trying to form himself in them, which apparently is what the uh, Judaizers were trying to do, was to get their own sort of nasty doctrines in their hearts. Instead, he's saying, no, you need Christ. Christ is the important thing. I have got to get Christ formed in you. Verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And this, that ending cracks me up. I am perplexed about you because uh, it's I don't know. It makes sense, actually, if you listen to everything he said, but that perplex means basically to stand in doubt or have doubts or just be at a loss. He's like, I don't know what to do with you guys. Um, and it seems to be an implication that maybe I don't know if he's just confused as to where they are spiritually, how they got here, or if he's saying, I, I don't even know if you guys are really Christians if you're struggling with this. 
Um, I'm not sure what he's implying there. But I also think it's interesting, he says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. So even though overall, I would say Paul has been really harsh in this letter towards them, he's like, I wish I could take a different tone with you, but I've got to make sure since this is in writing, I can't use the exact same tone I could if I was in person. I got to make sure you realize how serious this is. And yet this is towards the end of that, this big section where he's kind of making that personal appeal and he's trying to have that, come on guys, what's going on? So with the rest of this chapter, Paul is going to try to do one last push to really help them understand the relationship of Christians to the Mosaic Law. And he's going to do that by recounting a story of Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, uh, Sarah, Hagar, this big story involving them. And he's going to use that as an example of what we are to be doing with the Mosaic Law, what our relationship with that law is. Um, and yeah, so that's what he's going to do here in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So he's, I, I find it very funny when Paul just kind of pokes at the people he, he is arguing against. And he's saying, you know, you guys are so obsessed with the law. You're so concerned with us being under the law. You guys don't even know what it says. You haven't even listened to it. And he's going to spell it out for them. His whole contention. Remember, we did this back, I think, in chapter three, where he laid out or yeah, he laid out all the times in the Old Testament that it said that salvation was by faith. And here he's going to do a very similar thing about our relationship to the law now. Verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. There's a lot to unpack on this one because we have to understand the context of the story that Abraham's drawing off of here. Obviously, he expected his audience to understand it, but we need to refresh our memories. So let's take a few minutes to go over that. So you remember, no doubt, that Abraham was called to leave his homeland and was promised by God that God would make him a great nation and bless him. Um, so what happened was as Abraham started to get older in age, he started to be like, hey, God, and we see this in Genesis 15, he's kind of like, hey, um getting old. I don't have a kid. I'm not going to have a kid. The person who's going to inherit my land is going to be, uh, and all my property is going to be my servant. So what gives? And uh, God reassures him, no, no, no. It's going to be your own child. Your own offspring are going to be like the stars of the sky. There are going to be so many of them. And Abraham believed him. And, and that's one of the places where it says it believed him and it was counted to him as righteousness. So fast forward to Genesis chapter 16, Abraham's a six years old and Sarah, Abraham's wife is kind of tired of waiting on this. She says, look, it's obviously not happening with me. I'm not going to have a kid. Um, however, I do have a servant slash slave. We'll call it a, call her a slave Hagar. And we'll get into the whole servant slave angle here in a little bit. Um, but uh, I have a slave, Hagar, have sex with her. She's fertile. You can have a child through her. It's basically like a surrogacy and, and it'll be like it's mine. So Abraham agrees to this. They have sex. Hagar conceives a child, um, Ishmael. And immediately there's some hostility between Sarah and and Hagar for you know obvious reasons. Um, however, God shows up and says, nope, that wasn't what I said. I said that you will have a child by by through Sarah. You're going to have a child, and she's going to get pregnant, and Abraham's like, what? And God's like, yeah, for real. Um, so it's this whole awkward situation. Obviously, we have, we have created a bit of a mess now, haven't we? Fast forward again to Genesis chapter 21. Abraham's 100 years old, and God finally delivers on his promise and gives Isaac a child through Sarah, or gives Abraham the child Isaac through Sarah. Um, so... 
things seemed to be going good, but apparently they had at the time a ceremony that when a child would be weaned, they would they might have a big festival for him or celebration. And at this celebration, Ishmael, the older older child, the child of the slave, um, he actually was mocking the younger child. He would have been like about 14 at this time. And he was mocking Isaac. And Sarah said, I am not having this. Uh, that child, even though the older child would usually be the one to inherit, uh, theoretically, saying that child is not going to inherit along with my child, who's, you know, making fun of my little boy. So got some mommy, mama drama going on. And, uh, so there's, and so there's a big fuss, and Abraham talks to God, and God says, let Sarah do whatever she wants. And Sarah says, get her out, get that son out, kick him out, out of the, send him into the desert. So that's what they do. Thankfully, God sends special delivery, sends an angel to protect and take care of Hagar and Ishmael, so they survive. Um, but they're kicked out. They're done. So I want to take a minute to talk about the fact that Hagar was a slave, because I know in our brain we're immediately going to be like, that's rape, that's horrible, oh my goodness, how could you do that? Um, and we just don't have enough details to really understand exactly what was happening here. It may have been rape, um, but also sometimes being a slave, sometimes you would sell yourself into slavery to pay for a debt. So it might have been like a voluntary transaction, kind of like signing up for the military and that once you you voluntarily go into it, but once you go into it, you do whatever you're told. Um, obviously not the exact same thing as the military here. It might have also been a willing arrangement to have sex with him. It might not have been something forced upon her. After all, she was proud to have the child. It was something she was, was happy about. Um, so there's some hints there we get that it, it might not have been like a rape thing, but still uh, certainly a gross situation. I think we can all agree to that. Uh, and it might have been straight up rape. It might have been, this is where you're our slave. You're going to do this. The key thing to understand here is nowhere in any of this does God authorize this to happen. He never says this is what should be. This is them going their own way, trying in their own power to make God's promise come to pass. So this is not God's endorsement. This is them creating a mess. All right, so now that we've reminded ourselves of the context, let's see what Paul is trying to, to get them to realize from this. For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So the thing to get here is that the Judaizers that have been trying to get the, the Galatians to come underneath the law, they were trying to say, look, we are sons of Abraham. We have to be sons of Abraham before we can be Christians. And what Paul is saying is, yes, you are a child of Abraham, but you've forgotten there are two children of Abraham, not one. One is by a slave woman, and one is by a free woman. And of course, you tend to follow the status of your parent. If you if your parent was a slave, then you're a slave. If your parents are free, you're free. It's like a citizenship kind of thing. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Okay, so what is this? The slave woman was born to the flesh. That was not only a sinful thing uh, in that sense of the flesh, but also it was fleshly efforts. It was fleshly trying to make God's promise come about through their own power. They were trying to bring about, you know, God, you said they was going to have kids, so I'm going to make sure we have a kid. We're going we're gonna to do it, all right, through our fleshly efforts. So that's where uh, Ishmael came from, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So there are two different children, the one through fleshly human efforts that are sinful, and one that came by the promise of God. And hopefully you can see where this is going. Verse 24, 
Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So he's saying we're just going to explain what this passage means, how this reflects on our relationship with these two covenants, the covenant of Abraham that was done by promise and the covenant uh, to Moses that was through works of the law. And he says, you know, they take these Judaizers promoting this idea we need to be under the law. They are very much of the opinion that the law is the key to their salvation. But he's saying not so. Uh, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. That is where the law of Moses was given. The, the Mosaic covenant was established. The Ten Commandments were on Mount Sinai. Bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So he's saying this thing, this, this law that you think is leading to your salvation, to your freedom, to your justification, it's actually what makes you a slave. That covenant is Hagar. The slave woman from Egypt, the place of slavery. Verse 25, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So this is largely repeating the idea in the last verse, but he says it again, I think partially just because he's trying to be very explicitly clear, but he adds a little something this time. He says, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai, which he already said, but now he says, in Arabia. So why does he emphasize in Arabia? Well, Arabia is the place of Israel's enemies. Throughout most of their time uh, as a nation, Israel was surrounded by people that were hostile to them. So he says, this is the place of slavery. This is the place of the enemy. This is not the home of, of your team, guys. I know you think it is, but it's not. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So he's saying, the people in Jerusalem, their team, Hagar, their team, works keep you know earn your place by keeping the law and she is in slavery with her children everybody who's following that system of jerusalem that mosaic law system is in slavery verse 26 but the jerusalem above is free and she is our mother so just like the people who are following the mosaic law were children of the slave woman of current jerusalem our mother is the free woman which is the Jerusalem above. So what in the world is the Jerusalem above? Well, that's a complicated one. I'm going to try to give you a brief summary from a guy named Fung, F-U-N-G, his take on this passage. What he says is there are many places in the Bible where it refers to, uh, seems to be referring to another Jerusalem, and this can be broken down into basically two categories. One is a future Jerusalem, and the future Jerusalem is this uh, kind of fully realized Jerusalem. Say, when the Messiah comes back and sets up his reign here on earth, he is going to make Jerusalem like it needs to be, and that will be the future kingdom of Jerusalem, the future city of Jerusalem. So that's referenced many times uh, prophetically. Another thing that's referenced is seemingly a heavenly Jerusalem, and it seems to be the idea of kind of like how the temple is the dwelling place of God here on earth, the true dwelling place of God is in the spiritual realm, and that is like the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, I want to make it clear, I don't know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to summarize things as best as I understand them in my very limited way here. But his idea is that um, here where it's saying, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother, is kind of like a combination of those two ideas, because Messiah is going to set up the earthly Jerusalem, which we know from Revelation verse or chapter 21, it talks about heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth. So there's this kind of merging of heaven and earth together, it seems. 
um, into this new Jerusalem. And again, what, what this stuff looks like at, when it's realized practically, I don't know. Um, but we are citizens already of a better nation. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And I think these sorts of ideas are kind of included into this. So he's saying we are, we are actually from the heavenly Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem, the spiritual better one. And that brings freedom, not slavery. Uh, if you want to read some more, check out Hebrews 12, verse 18 through 24, another place where it reach, mentions the Jerusalem above, and I think gives kind of a little bit of a flavor of this. But let's stick with Galatians for the moment. Verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So Paul's using this uh this scripture, this little poetic section from the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, it's kind of referring to the restoration of Israel, how they've been desolated, but they will be restored and have more children than ever in the long run. But he's applying it to the situation with Sarah and Hagar and uh, the Judaizers in Christianity. And he's saying, look, just like Sarah was desolate, she didn't have any children, but in the end, she became a great nation through promise. So this Mosaic covenant which seems so great and has many children through Israel, it's nothing compared to the children that will come from the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, there's going to be so many more, whereas uh, the Mosaic covenant was for this limited group of Israel. The Abrahamic covenant includes all of us. We are all can be part of that if we are Christians. And there are so many more children coming through that. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So Paul makes it you know, clear again, we are children of promise. We are in with that Abrahamic covenant, like Isaac. That's our mother, is, is the free woman, right? But it goes on to say the child of the slave woman persecuted the child of the free woman. Remember, Ishmael was making fun of Isaac. That's what got him kicked out. So it's saying that's the same thing now. These people who think they are bound by the law have got to take it out on those that are free. That they've got to put it upon them. They're going that's what's happening here. They are persecuting you. And don't let them do that, I think is the pretty clear implication. Verse thirty. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So finally, Paul's built this big whole allegory um, also of this situation, and now he's getting to the point. He's saying, what did they end up doing with the slave woman and her son? They cast them out. They were cast out of the camp. They were no longer okay. They were not inheriting with the son. We want to be inheritors of the kingdom of God, of the promises of Abraham, and again, the idea is, Paul's whole point here is, yes, you are a child of Abraham, and he had two sons, and you Judaizers are the wrong son. He's saying that trying to keep the law for your justification, that clinging to that law, you're going to get cast out. We are casting you out. That is not the path of promise. Verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So he just lays it out one more time. And why is it that the Mosaic Law is slavery? Well, if you're counting on that for your justification, then you're constantly working, working, working. Whereas under the Abrahamic Covenant, it is by the promise through the work of God, and we just rest and trust in that. 
and the work God has done for us. So there's a bunch of differences between these two covenants, and uh, it was laid out through this whole section, but I, I think it kind of helps to look at them side by side. Um, the Mosaic covenant is slavery and bondage, but with Christ we have freedom. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Isaac was born by God's promised miracle. Uh, Ishmael came from earthly Jerusalem. Uh, Christianity comes from heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, the Mosaic covenant had many children. Christianity has many more children. The uh, Judaizers were persecuting. The Christians were persecuted. The Ishmael inherited nothing. The children of God inherit everything. One is a relationship based on law-keeping, and one is a relationship based on trust in Christ. So there are a bunch of key differences here. Also, something to mention just real quick. The Bible, Galatians makes it clear that you are not cannot be saved by clinging to that Mosaic covenant. But I think it goes further and says we're not even supposed to be trying to follow the laws of the Mosaic covenant. Uh, and... I wish I had more time to build this out, but, you know, Galatians 2.4 says the law is like slavery. Uh, it says in Galatians 2.19.20 that we died to the law. Uh, in Galatians 3.19 it says the law served its purpose until Christ, the offspring, came. Uh, in 3.25 it says we are no longer under the guardianship of the law when Christ comes. And, you know, here it talks about throwing out the law. Um, so... I think it makes a pretty clear case. Um, that's not to say that we do not have moral guidelines and principles, but we don't take that from the Mosaic Covenant that was given specifically to the people of Israel for a specific time. Clearly, there are many rules taught in the New Testament as well that are binding to Christians. And on that note, we'll be picking up on that very idea in Galatians chapter 5, Paul basically has wrapped up now his arguments as to why we are not under the Mosaic Law, and he's instead trying to say, okay, now that we're not under the Mosaic Law, how do you live your life as a Christian? And he's going to start laying that out for the rest of the book in chapters 5 and 6. So we'll, we'll cover 5 next time. Uh, and just a quick recap to what we talked about this time. Paul really just kind of made a personal appeal to them, uh, and really, in my mind, culminates with that, what happened to your blessedness? What what happened to your your happiness that used to define you? What has changed? What's wrong, guys? And he got, he got pretty, you know, intimate uh, there, in a way. And then, after kind of making that personal appeal to them, he gives them one big last logical argument using the allegory of Sarah and Hagar, just saying, we are children of the free woman, cast out the slave woman. You don't need that anymore. It's just going to hurt you. So anyway, that's where we'll end today, and we'll, we'll catch you next time. Bye.